0: A snare drum is different from other kinds of drums in one crucial way. You wouldn't know it from looking at it because on the top it looks like any other drum, but on the bottom there are snare wires stretched across the bottom of the drum that rattle up against the drum whenever you hit the head on top. It's kind of a violent life for a drum when you think about it. Nothing but getting hit in the head all day long. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music with lots of snare drum and music with no snare drum, and sometimes music with just a little bit of snare drum. We're definitely going to be talking about a lot of drumming on this episode, and I am excited to get into it. So turn up the volume, find a comfortable place to sit, and enjoy the show. There may be no more complex drum in a drummer's arsenal than the snare drum. It's a pretty fascinating thing when you think about it. It evolved from a 14th century drum that kind of instituted this idea of putting something, you know, like some snares, some wires on the drum to give you a slightly different sound. And it's pretty weird when you think that like the central drum of a drum set, which the snare drum absolutely is, is this just very different kind of drum that's set up to sound so unusual. You know, you can have a whole ton of tom-toms on your drum and those all sound a little different depending on how you tune them but the snare drum is just this totally weird completely other thing and it's just like taken for granted you know oh yeah you just you have this drum and it goes right in the middle of your drum set and it has these wires on the bottom and it sounds very strange and oh yeah you know it's the backbone of groove in modern music no big deal. So, we are definitely going to be talking quite a bit about drumming on this episode because we're going to be talking about one of the great drummers of all time. Before we get into it, a couple of things. First of all, I'm glad people liked last week's bonus episode. It's always fun to do those. This one was uh, kind of a challenge, you know. I was talking about some very fundamental concepts in uh, sort of dismantling music down to its core elements and uh, talking about rhythm and harmony. Um, Some of the stuff, the rhythm stuff that I talked about in particular, is going to be very useful on this episode. Of course, As always, I'm not going to assume that you've listened to it or anything like that, but I do recommend going and listening to it, kind of for everybody who listens to this show, just because it does introduce and explain a lot of the fundamental concepts that I talk about so often on this show. Of course, that bonus episode was supported by my Patreon backers. Everybody got to listen to it, but they're responsible for it. So thank you to everybody who backs this show on Patreon. It really means a lot. There have been a lot of people signing up lately, which has been fantastic. Find out more about how to help me make this show over at patreon.com slash strong songs. As always, you can reach me at StrongSongsPodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, or on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Um, Instagram's been a lot of fun still. Nice to see so many of you over there. I'm having a good time posting musical stuff and teasers over there. And of course, you can ask me a question via any of those platforms. And the next episode will be a Q&A episode. We have a lot of questions to get through. So I'm going to start working through my backlog of questions on next episode, Feel free to send me a question via any of those means. All right, on to this episode's Strong Song. It's a heck of a strong one from a really strong band that I've been wanting to talk about since I started making this show. You know, bands come in all shapes and sizes. There can be five people in a band, there can be 15 people in a band. The smaller you get, the more things each member probably has to do, and arguably the more important they are. This band is on the smaller end. There's only three people in it, but they are one of the biggest sounding bands to ever exist. This Strong Song is one one of their most famous songs, and man, does it begin strong. You don't even need the vocals to come in to know exactly what band you're listening to.
1: Monday, worry me, stride, today's Tom Sawyer, me.
0: Get your seats and tray tables in their upright and locked position. It's time for a trip to Prague with Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart, better known as Rush, and their 1981 hit, Tom Sawyer. Talk about bands custom-made for strong songs. The Canadian rock trio Rush has been a favorite of music nerds for many decades. They're a great band that I first heard in high school, and they blew my mind. I've mentioned that I was more of a jazz kid in high school. One of my best friends also played jazz with me, and he was a drummer. But of course, as a drummer, he was aware of Rush, and he played me a song of theirs from 1978 called La Via Strangiato. And man, it, it knocked me out. And then I actually didn't listen to them that much for many years. It wasn't until Later, I came back to them and came to appreciate just how creative they are, and then in the process of making this episode, I've been listening to a ton of Rush, and man, what a fun band. More than anything else, I would say they're just so much fun. These guys had so much fun playing together. It's a really special thing. Of course, I opened this episode talking about drumming. As you all probably know, I've been working on drumming and learning a lot of drumming lately. And one of the reasons that I'm making this episode now instead of slightly later in the year like I was planning it is because of the tragic death of the drummer from Rush, Neil Peart. Peart died at 67 last month in January. He died from brain cancer, and it's just so young, it's such a loss. I mean, Rush had been playing together until just a few years before that, and he still had so much more to offer. The more I've listened to them, the more I've realized just what a special drummer he was, and the more I've looked into him, the more I've learned about what a special person he was. He was an amazing guy. He made it through decades playing with this huge band and some really serious personal loss and tragedy and demonstrated what a remarkable person he is. In the process. Rock is full of a lot of outsized personalities and a lot of really talented people, but it's actually rare that I'll hear people talk with the level of introspection and self-awareness that I see when I listen to Neil Peart talk. One note, you may notice that I am pronouncing it Neil Peart and not Neil Pert, the way that a lot of people pronounce it. I actually always thought it was pronounced that way too, and the original version of this episode had me pronouncing it that way, but it turns out that's incorrect, so I went back and I fixed it. So I'm actually really excited to talk more about him, about his drumming, and about his band, about the other two people that he played with, to pay tribute to him and to all of the wonderful music that Rush made over the decades on this episode. So, Vital Stats, Tom Sawyer was written, of course, by Geddy Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart, the three members of Rush. The lyrics were by Peart and the poet Pai Dubois. It was the lead single and first track off of their 1981 album, Moving Pictures. This is a pretty big album. It also includes songs like YYZ and Limelight, definitely one of, if not the best known Rush albums. Really cool album, very fun to listen to. This one kicks it off in fine form. It's quite a beginning for an album. So, I want to talk about this song and we might as well start at the very beginning because as I said it starts not just the song but the album
1: a Monday, Monday. Uh, me
0: Okay, so before we can even get to what could be basically called the verse of this song, insofar as it has a verse, um, we're going to talk about the intro because there's a lot going on in this intro that is very distinct and is very rush. So we're going to do that thing where we spend a long time talking about the first few measures of a song. So there are two things that I want to talk about with this intro, the sense of space and the synthesizer. Let's start with the sense of space. This is a great intro in part because it immediately implies this really big sense of space. And I think that this is actually something Rush is very good at as a band. They have a really big sound, but they're actually sort of minimalist sometimes in the way that they approach things. I know that's not like a word that you would normally associate with Rush. They're a pretty indulgent band in some ways. But actually with their arrangements, they're fairly restrained. And I think that that's actually very true of this song. Take this intro. So this intro very methodically introduces each sound of the band until they're all playing together. It starts with just synth and drums. It's such a good synth sound, don't worry, we will get to it. So that's just a synthesizer playing a big open chord, and then the drums are just playing a pretty closed beat with some nice reverb on it, which actually sounds kind of spacious. The next thing that comes in is Getty Lee's high vocals, and he comes in on his own. It's just synth, drums, and then the vocals come in for this one introductory phrase. It's very dramatic.
1: A Monday, worry
0: so, after the vocals have come in, then they introduce the bass and the guitar, the other two major elements of this song. That's Lifeson, and then Getty is also playing bass. And that's kind of it. So, once he's sung, then the guitar and the bass come in, and the synth stays in, the drums stay in, and you've got kind of the whole band in. And that's really it. It's a big sound, it's a big riff, and a really dramatic beginning for a song in so many different ways. I love this intro, I think it's so effective. Okay, so in order to talk about the space, now we need to talk about the synth. So, this synthesizer, this thing is so cool. This is called the Oberheim OBX. This is a very commonly used synthesizer. You've heard it on a ton of things. I think it's like the synthesizer on Van Halen's Jump. I know Styx used it a lot. So many songs from the 80s, it's a very famous sound. It can do a whole lot of different things, a very cool synthesizer. Now, I've talked about synthesizers before on this show. This is something I'm only recently really learning about, even though, you know, I've understood synthesizers my whole musical career. I'm kind of getting into them, and they're really fun. It's just important to note that a synthesizer is its own type of musical instrument. It's kind of the original electronic instrument. And I think people think of synths abstractly a lot of the time, like, oh, it's just a keyboard. I don't know. It's just playing stuff off a computer. But that's not really true. And especially when you're talking about synths from the 70s and 80s, they were analog instruments that made certain you know wave patterns and then you could adjust them with all of the knobs it was an instrument just like a saxophone or a guitar and the Oberheim OBX is a distinct instrument that makes a lot of different sounds it's very flexible it's designed to be but it's a distinct sounding thing and if you want that sound you have to get that synth Now, they make a modern version of this that you can get for a few thousand dollars, or you can buy a vintage one for, I don't even know, like you can maybe find them for over 10 grand. They're very, very expensive. Fortunately, there is a plugin that you can get that I downloaded, a free plugin. I'll actually link it in the show notes. It's made by Dat Sounds, and it's called the OBXD, and it's just a digital recreation of the synthesizer that sounds pretty close. I have been having a blast with this thing, and it's been very fun to recreate the sounds that they got on this recording. Messing with this free plugin has been a bit of a gateway drug. There's a paid plugin called OPX Pro that apparently is even closer to the original OBX, and now I'm considering buying it. Anyway. So a synthesizer creates a sound and then gives you a whole bunch of ways to manipulate that sound and manipulate the frequencies that are ringing in it. And here I'm using a, an envelope, a sort of sweep filter, to create that, like, meow, that that descending sound that they get. And that, I think, it gives this sense of motion. I'm really just playing E's in octaves. I'm not totally sure what Getty is playing here, and this is, I believe, Getty Lee is the one playing the OBX on this recording. But you just hold two notes, but because I've set the parameters a certain way, it gives me that like dive bomb sound that the filter is doing after I press the notes over a certain amount of time that fills in the space with the drums and creates a really cool sensation of sort of creating a big open space and then slowly filling it up so let's recreate this thing let's start with the drums here's Neil Peart's drum groove from the beginning of the song So not a super exciting groove on its own, pretty straightforward, let's add the synth. <laughs> so by putting that synth in over that very controlled, closed drum groove that Neil Peart starts out on, you know, he's over on the hi-hat, it's like a pretty tight, small thing, just kind of that snare drum ringing out, but the synth is this huge sound that then decays over time in this really grand, spacious way, which perfectly sets up Geddy's vocal entrance.
1: Monday, warrior, worry of uh, me mean mean stride right. today Tom Sawyer, you me
0: now much has been written about Getty Lee's singing. I personally actually like his voice. I think he has a pretty cool voice. It's a very distinct voice. It's piercing and high. He sings extremely high. He's like singing a D here in the middle, very beginning of the male vocal break. And this is kind of low for him. This song goes way higher than that. So he's always kind of wailing out there in his high belt and his high mix. However, he sings with really good technique. His voice is clear as a bell almost all the time. He rarely distorts, he rarely pushes it. Because of that, if you hear Getty Lee singing like in kind of recent Rush performances, he sounds great. I mean, the guy is like in his 60s and his voice still sounds perfect. He's hitting all those high notes and really sounds good because his technique is so good. He's not pushing his voice too hard. I don't want to get sidetracked talking about vocal technique, but it's something that I admire about his singing for sure. Now his voice is very clear, and on this entrance, he's you know cutting right through. He exists right in the middle. The synth is kind of this big, round, you know, wide thing creating an ambience. The drum is kind of holding down a really closed and focused pulse, and Getty's voice is kind of more in the drum zone of just like cutting right through. However, they're doing something cool with his voice to create just a bit of a sense of atmosphere around it.
1: A Monday, worry
0: if you can hear it, there's a delay on his voice. There's sort of a delay effect that causes an echo. So every note that he sings or every word that he sings, there's a, there's delay, a delay that kind of pops, pops right, right in, the, in, in the in the aftermath, aftermath of, it of it as he moves on to the next, the next word. word. You, can you can hear it, hear it if you, you, you speak, speak with, with short, short phrases, phrases like, like he's, he's singing. singing. It's a little bit down in the mix. I believe this is called a slapback delay, and what it creates is kind of a sense of space that you almost don't even notice until you realize it's there.
1: A Monday
0: So between that and the reverb that they've got on the snare drum and the way the synth is kind of moving, what they've done is created a sense of the possibility of all of this space without actually filling it up. They're not starting small exactly, it's more like a big hollow space. So it's big, but it's hollow, and they're getting ready to pour a bunch of sound into it. That's what I like about this intro. I think it's the it's a feeling of like a big chalice that you're about to pour all of your rock into. So let's pour the rock This riff rules and introduces, of course, the last two elements As I already mentioned, Alex Lifeson on guitar and Getty Lee's bass It really fills in the sound that Chalice now has quite a bit of rock in it Though, as you'll see as we go through this song They continue to develop and grow and sort of fill the space in And make it more and more dense and complex But this is definitely where everybody comes in And we're off to the races This is a really cool chord progression. Um, It's fun to play on guitar, and it's cool on its own. This is basically the chord progression. It's four chords. These are the chords that underlie what I kind of think of as the verse for this song, though like a lot of songs that we've talked about actually on Strong Songs, I think that Tom Sawyer is basically a through-composed song. This doesn't really have a traditional form, even though it does have a few sections that do repeat. So, as I've discussed on, I think it was the Elton John episode, this is kind of a pedal tone situation. A pedal tone in music is when there's one note... In the bass that just sort of sits on the bass while the chords move around on top of it in this case this song is in the key of e and the pedal tone here is an e that works out well especially for alex lifeson who's playing guitar because the lowest note on the guitar is that sixth string the low e and he's pedaling all of these chords over that low e so it starts with a kind of an e power chord thing then it goes to a d over e which is like the flat seventh it just goes down a step Then it goes to an A7 over E. This is like a really crucial chord because it adds a kind of layer of complexity. It's a dominant seventh chord, so you're getting a kind of G in there, which adds a slightly bluesy sound. Then that fourth chord is a C over E, which is just a little bit dissonant and a little bit of an unsettled place for the phrase to end. You can really hear all the notes on piano, but it sounds very cool on guitar because you can kind of voice it. I think I'm doing something close to what Alex Lifeson is doing. I'm kind of approximating it. I'm no great guitar player, but you can play these open chords, uh, especially that E open chord, which is just like E's and B's and E's. It's kind of a huge power chord and just start with a really big sound. And then you just slide that shape down the neck. Lovely sounding Then you get to play that A7 with the G on top It gives you a nice extra bit of color And then you get that C major over E I actually always kind of let a major 7th Like let that B string ring out Just because I think it sounds cool so it's just four chords and they're pretty common chords too you know it kind of gives you this nice just straight ahead rock chord progression that works very well in a bunch of different formats but the way that they play it and the space that they put on it is what makes this sound so distinct man it rocks you know what this needs a little saxophone Okay, okay, you get the gist. It's a great space, it's a great musical space, and it's really fun to put musical ideas into that space. Let's move on to the verse and see what Getty Lee does with it. really cool melody to kind of weave through that chord progression it's interesting because it starts up on a g sharp though his mind is not for rent that note ba, is the major third and um this is you know the guitar might be playing a major third but it's mostly like kind of just a big power chord so having the major third up on top really establishes this as a major tonality which you know this song doesn't lean that hard into the idea of it being e major uh, except with that one note in the melody So after Getty sings that verse, they go through this kind of walk-down riff, and then they do an instrumental pass through those same four chords, but there is a crucial difference in the groove, and I'm curious if you can hear what it is. It's caused by a number of different musical elements that have all been tweaked just a little. So here's the last instrumental pass through that same four-chord chord chord progression. Listen to see if you can hear what's different. (laughs) So at this point where we're fading out, you know, it's kind of moved on to the next section of the song. This is the sort of ascending bassline part of the song that we'll get to in a moment. So that last time through those four chords kind of acts as a transition point leading you into the next major section of the song. There's quite a bit that's different about it, even though it's those same four chords that we already went over. So the first major thing that's different is something that Neil Peart is doing on the drums. This is something to just listen for in general with Neil Peart and kind of with any drummer. And it's basically, what is the sizzle? Where is he getting his sizzle now there are three elements of the patented strong songs thump pop sizzle groove breakdown the thump of course is usually something low something thumpy like a kick drum in this case definitely a kick drum because it's a drum set the pop is the snare drum it's something that offsets the thump and kind of bounces into the space in between the thumps and the sizzle is usually a cymbal or something high pitched that goes in between the two and fills out the groove So if you remember, I talked about the opening drum part at the very beginning is a very hi-hat centric thing. The sizzle is coming from the hi-hat. The thump and the pop entirely on this recording are just kick drum and snare. So the only thing that changes is where he's getting his sizzle. And at the beginning, that's coming from the hi-hat. Remember those those closed cymbals you play over on the left. They get a much more like kind of a sound. Sounds like this. Now the groove that he plays on this last time through, this transition point to the new section, he moves his right hand, which is what's playing the uh, what's playing the hi-hat, he moves that over to the bell of his ride cymbal, which opens things up really significantly. Basically everything kind of stays the same. It's a more aggressive, slightly different groove on the snare drum, but the thump and the pop are basically the same, the tempo's the same, but by moving it over and opening up the groove, it creates a really different sound. That bell is just a lot ringier and a lot brighter sounding. It kind of pops out in the mix. Listen now to the band and try to hear that. It's just, you know, it's over a little bit on the left, actually, and I'll just hear that clang, 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 clang. So another major difference is the synth has come up and kind of out. There's definitely these synth pads happening that have kind of broadened out and gotten louder during this section. But the other major difference is who has taken the lead. Now Rush has three people and they kind of hand off who is in charge of the sound at any given moment. You know, who is the lead? Sometimes they have a lead guitar player. Sometimes they have a lead bassist. And sometimes they have a lead drummer. This section is actually the first time that Getty Lee takes the lead on the bass. This is a very bass-driven section of the song, and it sets up something that he does several times throughout this song, which is the bass completely takes over the lead and like becomes the defining aspect of the groove in front of the drums and in front of the guitar. You can hear during this section, we'll listen back in a second, Alex Lifeson's guitars have really spread out to the side. He's playing pretty ambiently. It's, he's not really digging in. The bass is what's digging in, and the bass is just hitting it. In addition to the change to a new section of the song, new chords, like a new riff that they're going into, there's also a kind of handoff going on between the different sounds of the band. And here Getty Lee is really taking over. He kind of drives the next few sections. The bass is very much the kind of driving definitive sound. So we're gonna listen back to that section again in a second, things to keep an ear out for when we do. First of all, listen for how the bass is just totally driving the whole thing. There's this cool ascending bass line going on. This goes down to E and just kind of walks up an E minor and then back down. It's a very guitar-y kind of a thing. Alex Lifeson is just leaving his strings ringing, and this really lends itself to being played on guitar. It's pretty easy to learn and pretty fun. Just because you can leave the B string ringing and walk the bass line up as you do that, and it sounds pretty cool. So there's not, like, exactly defined harmony on this. It's more just about that moving bass line that kind of walks up an E minor and then back down. It hits that C, which is the sort of really the most distant note in the whole passage that sounds really cool so keep an ear out for that and also listen for that guitar part the guitar has got that b string ringing out and also i kind of hear an e and those are just sort of consistent notes as he plays it which gives it a kind of a a cool suspended feeling of space last thing to listen for is how neil peart starts down on the hi-hat and then halfway through this section switches back over to the ride cymbal kind of hitting at that bell to get that more open sound Rock's pretty hard, right? But there's one missing element that it's time to bring back. The synthesizer. (laughs) Man, that Oberheim. I can't get enough of it. I think that thing is so cool. I would love to play one. I can't get enough of it on this recording. And every time they use it, it just creates the coolest atmosphere. The coolest space. So it's actually kind of a short little section there that they were setting up, and as you can hear at the end, they're transitioning back to a groove that actually sounds like the beginning of the song. So this is kind of a transitional section, it's pretty short, and it's pretty cool, It actually does something different by introducing very new chords that weren't in the song before, and a pretty distinct sound. So what it does is it actually walks up to B major, and this section, it doesn't exactly change keys, but this section is in B major. And that melody that Getty sings, the world is, the world is, love and life are deep, Uh, Cool lyrics and kind of, you know, beautiful lyrics in a certain way. And there's a more beautiful sound to this melody in this part of the song. It's a little bit more ruminative and placid and a little bit less dark and driving. Now this has all been well and good, but it's time to get a little bit more prog.
1: He gets on you and the space he
0: invades, he gets by on you. Yes, it wouldn't be progressive rock without some odd time signatures and it's time for Tom Sawyer to introduce it's defining odd time signature, which is the odd time signature of 7-8. So this song has actually been in 4-4 four, four time up to this point. Pretty standard time signature, the most common one, referred to as common time. But at this section, they finally introduce something a little bit unusual. That is 7-8 time, which means there are 7-8 notes in every measure. Now Rush as a band, and prog bands in general, are very fond of time signatures that are in 7, be there 7-4 or 7-8, usually 7-8. Seven, 7 is a very cool time signature. And it's one used by bands that are being a little showy about the fact that they're playing an unusual time signature. That's for a specific reason. I think that seven is really cool because it's almost a normal groove. So 8-8 8-8 eight, eight would just be kinda like 4-4, four, four. that would just be a regular time signature. So by playing in 7-8, you're just removing one eighth note from what would otherwise be a complete groove. So if you're playing in 4-4 four, four, and then you switch to 7-8, it creates this kind of tripping, like hiccup feeling. You're almost playing the normal groove, but then you're getting to the downbeat one eighth note earlier than you were expecting. And for a listener, that can be just kind of this tripping feeling that keeps you off balance. And it can be a really effective and pretty neat thing to put into your song. Okay, so let me demonstrate. I'm gonna start a groove, and this groove is gonna be similar to what Neil Peart is playing, and this is just gonna be in regular 4-4 time. So it's perfectly grooving, right? Let's put the synth parts. This is still the Oberheim OBX. Uh, it's playing a different, two different sounds. There's a big pad and then a lead. Let's put the synth part over this, keeping it in regular 4-4 time. So that's just if it were in 4-4 time. It sounds fine, but it doesn't have that kind of, wait a minute, what vibe that 7-8 does? Okay, so we're going to go back and we're going to build it again. This time we're going to build it in 7-8. Here's the groove that Neil Peart plays in 7-8. That's a good way to count it. If you remember on our Rhythm and Harmony episode, we talked some about compound time signatures. Seven, eight is actually a pretty simple compound time signature, and it's a lot easier to count it one, two, one, two, one, two, three, which adds up to seven. Now, at the risk of confusing you, I actually hear the second time that it happens as one, two, three, one, two, one, two, which is just kind of a flipped version of the first time. So it goes one, two, one, two, one, two, three, and then 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 1, 2, which is two sets of 7 with the pairs of 2 on either end. The important thing is trying to group things into smaller groups of 2 and 3 rather than trying to go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, just if nothing else because the larger numbers are just take like 7 just takes a long time to say. You know, they really should have made all the numbers one syllable. Like who has time to say 13 or 11 or even 7? It should all be 1, 2, Three, ah, those are so much easier to say. Okay, so I really wanna drill into the difference between 7-8 and 4-4. So again, here is the 4-4 version of that synth part without anything weird, just 4-4 time. And now I'm gonna do it in 7-8 and I want you to just pay attention for how the pulse just feels like it trips at the very end of each one and it gets to the downbeat a little bit earlier than you were expecting. Pretty cool, right? So by getting you comfortable with 4-4 and making this whole song in a just straightforward 4-4 time signature up until this point, when they go into 7-8, it feels like that, you get that kind of tripping feeling. It's really exciting, especially because they're also introducing this really cool synth lead sound that's kind of taken over and added a really distinct color to the song. You know, this, this kind of a synth lead sound was just not in the song before. So it's kind of introducing this whole new energy along with a new time signature that makes this section really cool. I think this is kind of the defining, iconic section of the song. I feel like everybody knows this synth part. And it just, it sounds so good.
1: The
0: All right, here we go. 1, And you can also just count it. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And onward into the guitar solo. There's a couple of cool things going on here during Alex Lifeson's guitar solo. Part of it is where the groove is centered. Part of it is what he is playing on guitar. And part of it is uh, they do one more rhythmic trick to kind of add just a final little corkscrew to the already funky counting that they're doing since they're already in 7-8. And I want to break all of those things down. So let's start by just listening to a bit of the solo. This is a guitar solo, though it's a pretty wacky one. He's playing a lot of pretty weird stuff. He's kind of out of time and just moving around and playing sort of abstract shapes and tones. So listen to a bit of this solo. Pay attention to where the groove is really kind of situated and try to hear just everything that's going on. solo is kind of what I think of as a kite and anchor solo. This is a term I'm kind of making up right now, the kite and the anchor, but it's something that I hear a lot, especially in like progressive jazz and in jazz fusion, in a lot of prog rock, and it's basically where someone in the band, or maybe two people, in this case it's two people, create an anchor. They really identify the tempo, and that allows other people in the band, in this case Life's Known Guitar, to be more of a flying free kite, and to just leave the time behind a little bit, and play completely freely with the confidence of knowing that the time will be there for them whenever they need to check back in with it. This solo is a great example of that, Lyson is flying all over the place, sometimes he'll lock into the groove for just a couple of beats, but then he'll just go into a space where it feels like he's consciously trying to kind of divorce himself from the pulse of the song, which creates a really cool effect, it's the feeling of something flying completely free over a rock solid foundation. I'm not saying that he's playing completely out of time or anything, the pulse is still technically there in everything he's playing. You can hear when he checks back in, right? Like he'll play that bomb 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 riff, he comes back to that and plays it with the bass and the drums, and then sets off on his own again. It's a neat effect and it's nice to hear it here because it's really crystallized, like Lifeson is the kite and Geddy and Neil are the anchor and so you can really kind of see it and visualize it. Also the mix, if you've noticed, has become much more simple at this point. The synths are out, there's not overdubbed guitars. This is the most stripped down Rush sounds on this entire recording, which highlights the contrast between what Lifeson is playing and what Lee and Peart are playing. So the kite and the anchor, you know, the kite flying free, the anchor holding the tempo. That, it kind of crystallizes a relationship that the individual instruments in a lot of progressive and sort of advanced ensembles have with one another. This version in Tom Sawyer is really straightforward because the bass and the drums, the most traditionally solid instruments, are still holding down the anchor, while the guitar, you know, typically more of a solo instrument, is flying free. In a lot of modern groups, actually, bands will sort of organically hand off being the anchor, and sometimes all three of them will become kites, and you can really get some exciting stuff happening, though it can also sort of lose you if you're not listening very carefully and sort of able to keep track of what's going on. I was recently talking to a friend of mine about Keith Jarrett, the pianist, and his famous trio with Gary Peacock and Jack DeJohnette on bass and drums. That trio does this whole anchor kite thing where a lot of the time, Keith Jarrett, the piano player, will be soloing, and he's kind of the anchor. He's playing the most steady time, and the bass and drums are just all over the place, and they come together and move apart in these really organic, kind of crazy ways that are difficult to hear at first when you hear that group. pretty far cry from, you know, splang-splang-alang in the drums and ding 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 in the bass while the piano solos, but that's precisely what makes Keith Jarrett's trio so exciting. They're more like an organism. And they're really cool. I mean, that may sound like a nonsense to some of you if you don't listen to this group or to a lot of that kind of music, but man, Keith Jarrett is brilliant and his trio is just incredible. A more high-octane, or at least high decibel version of this sort of kite anchor concept that comes to mind is the Wayne Krantz trio. Wayne Krantz is an incredible jazz, jazz fusion guitar player. In 1995, he made this album called Two Drink Minimum that you've got to check out. Um, He's playing with bassist Lincoln Goines and drummer Zach Danzinger. It's recorded live, I think, over a couple of nights at the 55 Bar in New York. It is a bananas record. The opening track, Whippersnapper, is like one of the most unbelievable guitar songs I've ever heard. And one of the really cool things about this group is the pulse is always there, but they stretch and they take turns being the anchor and the kite. And actually, similar to Keith Jarrett's trio, uh, Wayne Krantz is actually the anchor as often as not. And a lot of times, Danzinger, the drummer, is the kite. And it's like the drummer is almost soloing at the same time as the guitar player. I mean, listen to a clip from this. (laughs) So this tradition didn't start with Rush. This goes back to stuff John Coltrane was doing with his drummer Elvin Jones. This, There's a whole thing here that I could get into. My point is really, this is an interesting thing to think about, and I think that this guitar solo on Tom Sawyer kind of exemplifies it in a way that's pretty easy to parse. There's a kite and there's an anchor. Alex Lifeson is a kite flying free on the wind, and Geddy Lee and Neil Peart are the anchors holding the ground steady for when he wants to return. Now, I mentioned there was one more bit of rhythmic trickery going on in the solo, and that's true. Just when you've kind of gotten used to 7-8, which this whole solo is in, and we're kind of in a steady 7-8, they actually kind of mess with you, and when the whole band comes back together on that groove, bom, 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 they play a bar of 6-8, so they remove one more eighth note, and they get to the downbeat even a little bit faster than you were expecting. Let me play you an example, and I'll count along. Here we go two one two one So I'm really just counting to 6 there to make it clear where the bar of 6-8 happens. I don't want to belabor this since we've talked a lot about counting already, but to those of you who are interested in why you've gotten comfortable counting in 7 and then suddenly it just feels like something is a little bit off during the guitar solo, that's what it is. They're being tricky because, you know, if you remember the 7-8, it gives you that feeling of kind of stumbling, like you're getting to the downbeat faster than you were expecting. By then adding a bar of 6-8 right when you least expect it, it kind of makes you stumble again and they're just keeping the listener off balance, which is a really fun trick at the end of the solo they all come out together into the riff and then it's time for the drone solo It's honestly pretty restrained and short as Neil Peart drum solos go for a good time. Go on YouTube and look for Neil Peart drum solos. There's a lot of them and you can see his amazing 360 degree drum set and get a feel for just how much fun he has using every single drum in that drum set. This solo does have some things that are kind of emblematic of Peart's playing. First of all, that initial fill cracks me up, where he just goes down his toms. Peart had a lot of drums in his set, and as a result, he was able to play fills like that that move from tom to tom to tom, and you get this huge, like, like just down a massive spectrum of drums. Where, you know, a lot of drum sets don't have that many toms. My drum set has two toms. I've got one up, one down. And I can't play a fill like that. And when I hear that, I think, well, it would be cool to be able to play a fill like that, even though, of course, you don't technically need that many drums to play cool drum parts. So I want to talk about Neil Peart a little bit, his sort of musical and cultural legacy in a way that I hope will make it clear how much I really love and respect him as a drummer. Now, he's kind of a complicated figure for some drummers. I obviously, I'm not really a drummer or I'm barely a drummer, but I know a lot of drummers and I've sort of paid attention to how people talk about Neil Peart over the years. He's kind of emblematic of this rock jazz chasm that can exist in drumming. And he does bring out a little bit of snobbishness sometimes for people who were more on the jazz side of that chasm. Here's a kind of nutshell version of it. Jazz drummers tend to play with kind of smaller kits, maybe two toms, a couple of cymbals, that's all you really need. It's much more about the pulse and about fluidity of motion, about being complimentary and sensitive, about having a really good feel, and being able to be very versatile and play lots of different styles. Rock drummers, and Neil Peart was kind of an early exemplar of this, Tend to be more about hitting it really hard, playing really fast, having a lot of drums and a big, exciting drum set that's very fun to watch, and playing in a way that's maybe a little less subtle and a little less fluid. Now, it won't surprise any of you to hear that I actually think all of those things are important and that being a great drummer can look like a lot of different things and it can sound like a lot of different things. Neil Peart is a fantastic drummer, and I think the main reason he's a fantastic drummer is because he was the greatest drummer for Rush ever. He was perfect for Rush. Rush built out of his drumming. He was an integral part of that sound, and that is the most important thing. The older I get, the less of a snob I become, and any high-minded thoughts I may have about how a drummer should play or what an ideal drummer sounds like, they kind of just fall away when I hear how much fun Neil Peart has playing drums and how much he brings to the band. Moreover, I don't even really think that that dichotomy holds up all that well. You know, your super smooth, fluid jazz drummer on the one hand, your robotic rock drummer with his massive drum set on the other. I don't think that that take is really fair, both to the people who like really big drum sets, but also, more importantly, to Neil Peart himself. I think he's actually a more complicated and interesting figure than that, particularly now that I've learned more about who he was as a person and as a musician so i want to talk a little bit about that and to do that i'm actually going to talk about the very very good tv show freaks and geeks which i'm guessing a lot of you have seen and which actually captures a lot of truth about neil peart and both the people who love him and the people who are more critical of him Freaks and Geeks was a show that came on in 1999, it was created by Paul Feig and Judd Apatow, and stars a lot of people that then went on to become famous, uh, James Franco, Seth Rogan, and Jason Segel. It centers on a group of Midwestern high school kids in the 1980s, and kind of gets a lot of stuff very right about growing up and learning who you are, especially for people who, like me, grew up in the 1980s in the Midwestern suburbs. Jason Segel's character on that show is named Nick Andopolis and has this amazing love of Rush and Neil Peart. He's a drummer. He has this unbelievably huge drum set set up in his basement that's very much emulating Neil Peart's drum set. There's a great scene where he has got headphones on and is drumming along with Spirit of the Radio. But then, of course, he only thinks that he sounds like Spirit of the Radio. And in reality, we get to hear what he actually sounds like when he's playing. so good, especially as someone who has practiced drums while wearing headphones, and you do kind of hear the drums going on with what you're practicing, but of course, anybody listening in the outside just hears bashing drums. Uh, I love this scene. I love Nick, and I think that Nick kind of embodies something that a lot of people felt about Neil Peart, which it was just so easy to get really into how much fun he was having with all of his toys. There's a scene later in the show where Nick goes to audition for a real rock band, and he's clearly just not a good fit. He's not really up to the level that they're looking for but the guys are also a little bit just low-key mean i mean nick talks about how big his drum set is and you can tell they're kind of laughing at him because you know a real drummer doesn't need 29 pieces in their kit to sound good hey uh good luck with that 29 piecer man uh maybe someday you'll knock it up to an even 30 But at the same time, it's a really sad and really human moment for Nick because of course he loves Neil Peart and Neil Peart's drums. They're so cool. I mean, have you ever seen Neil Peart's drum set? It's like the coolest thing ever. Of course he loves it. It's not just that Neil Peart rocks. It's that his drums represent this fantasy to Nick. And I think they represented that to a lot of people. And that's really meaningful. So there's a later scene where Nick comes over to the Weirs, who are kind of the central family of the show. And he's hanging out and listening to Rush. He's actually listening to Tom Sawyer. And Mr. Weir comes in and talks to him about Neil Peart, note that Nick pronounces it the way that I used to pronounce it, and basically says to him, you know, this drummer you're listening to isn't actually very good.
2: By the way, that drummer you're listening to? Yeah. He's terrible. (laughs) That's Neil Peart. He's the greatest drummer alive. Well, Neil Peart couldn't drum his way out of a paper bag.
0: Now this is all a little bit of a bit, right? These are both characters and they're both kind of representing different archetypes. Nick is the starry-eyed young kid who's heard Peart and gotten so excited by what he's doing. Mr. Weir is the old hand who's heard a thing or two and knows about the great jazz drummers and wants to kind of show the younger listener, oh, but hey, there's these really great other players out there too. So Mr. Weir takes Nick out and then plays him a Buddy Rich drum solo, and Nick freaks out, thinking, you know, whoa, this guy is amazing, this is a whole other kind of drumming that I've never heard. Now I want to stress that I think that Mr. Weir and Nick are both right. Neil Peart is a great drummer, Buddy Rich is a great drummer, and I mean, Buddy Rich is arguably the greatest technical drummer to ever live. And actually, as it happens, Buddy Rich is one of Neil Peart's idols. They're very different drummers, and I think that watching Nick, a fictional Neil Peart fan, hear Buddy Rich for the first time kind of illustrates the difference difference in a cool way that guy is amazing how'd you hear about him you kidding these
2: guys i grew up with gene krupa and buddy rich
0: oh god he even says something really cool he says oh he must be playing in this style referring to traditional grip which means his left hand is holding the stick a little bit differently which jazz drummers tend to do and lets you play a little bit faster how do they do that they must hold the sticks like this i can't do that i've never been able to do that but then you can go faster that way. Oh! It's a fun scene because Nick really gets into it, but it's also kind of legit about drum technique, and it ends with Nick thinking, I should maybe go take a lesson and get better at drums. Oh my, that is insane! Nobody can do that! Maybe I should take a lesson, huh? What's really cool about this scene, though, is how it intersects with the real Neil Peart and with Neil Peart's musical journey. While I was working on this episode, I watched a documentary, a 2002 documentary called Neil Peart, A Work in Progress. And he talks about how he actually relearned how to play the drums after 30 years and after becoming, you know, the greatest rock drummer that all these people worshipped in this great band, he actually started taking private lessons with a new teacher and learned a new way to play the drums.
2: Um, Would it be worthwhile after 30 years of working away on my own and learning from all the other drummers of the world, um, maybe it's time I should take take a little bit of time here and uh, and work with a teacher and see what might transpire
0: this teacher is named freddie gruber he's a very famous drummer jazz drummer he taught a lot of great drummers that was kind of his thing i think that pierre learned about him from steve smith who's like one of the greatest living drummers and an unbelievable drummer and pierre actually says that he was inspired to find a teacher and start working on his technique again after he was organizing a tribute to who else but buddy rich <gasps> that guy is amazing how'd you hear about him you kidding? These guys? I grew up with Gene Krupa
2: and Buddy Rich.
0: And it reflects so well on Peart the way that he talks about his own musicianship in this documentary and the way he talks about that process of realizing that he had more to learn and he wanted to go about learning it.
2: And uh, I reached a point after 30 years of playing, after 20-odd years with the band, that I was feeling a little bit restless, um, not jaded or smug or overconfident by any means, but just that I'd honed a style of my own. And I felt like I was doing that style, playing myself about as well as I could, and I was unsure what to do with that information once I realized it.
0: Listening to Peart describe how he approached that first lesson gives such a good sense of how he thought of himself and his own musicianship, and it really makes me admire him a lot. Listen to how he talks about this.
2: So I arranged to spend a week with Freddie in New York City um, about a year and a half ago now, and uh, in the course of that, He watched me play for about one minute and then uh, proceeded to give me a whole set of exercises and uh, a whole new approach to the drums physically that really demanded that I start all over again. And That was a bit daunting in in two ways. First of all, after 30 years to be starting all over again, but secondly because it would require me to start a discipline of practicing too that I hadn't had the luxury of with all these years of touring and recording and being devoted to that, but I did find the discipline to. uh, devote myself to this, to reinventing myself. So I started practicing every day down in the basement, went back to uh, traditional grip for the first time in 30 years, and started learning the fluidity of motion that uh, Freddie preached, and started trying to apply it to the way that I like to play the drums.
0: If you're very, very good at something, it takes a lot of character to open yourself back up to the learning process so that you can learn a new way to do it or to be even better. And you may have noticed that he said, I learned traditional grip. In the documentary, he talks quite a bit more about this. This is a very lengthy look at how Neil Peart thinks of the drums, which makes it also very fun to watch. But he talks a lot about traditional grip, which for drummers usually it's the left hand, and if you hold the traditional grip, it means you're kind of holding the drumstick a little bit more like you'd hold a pencil, I I guess Or maybe chopsticks is a better comparison. You've got it pinched between your fingers rather than just holding it straight on, which is called matched grip. Traditional grip does give you a little bit more fluidity, and a lot of jazz drummers use it. And it's funny because that's exactly what Mr. Weir and Nick were talking about on Freaks and Geeks, and the reason, according to Nick's hypothesis, that Buddy Rich was able to play so quickly and so smoothly. How do they do that? They must hold the sticks like this. I can't do that. I've never been able to do that. But you can go faster that way. Oh! So it's such a cool addendum to that scene from Freaks and Geeks that Neil Peart did eventually focus on learning traditional grip and on improving his smoothness, despite the fact that he was already, of course, such a great drummer in such a great band. And he did it by doing the thing that Nick realizes he should do at the end of this scene. He found a teacher to teach him how to do it. Maybe I should take a lesson, huh? I loved this documentary, A Work in Progress. It's really cool to watch. If you're into drumming or Rush or Neil Peart, I can't recommend it enough. It's also just pretty cool to watch, honestly, as a counterpart to this episode. It gives a view of this drummer, this great titan of rock drumming, as really just this guy who's very introspective and always seeking to improve. A Work in Progress is a really good name for it. I find it really inspiring anyways, and it really underlines for me what a big hole he leaves now that he's gone. His music, of course, will live on forever. So coming out of the solo section, they've basically established all the major sections of this song, and they just repeat them again, albeit with a lot more energy. I love what Beart plays here. (laughs) Yes. So they go back into this ascending riff, and it's, again, you know, kind of the same as they did before. There's just more busy drumming going on. It's higher energy in general. So from there, they go back into that interlude section. Remember the section that goes into B major? It sounds even more spacious and open this time. It really works well. And from here, it's time to take it to the outro with a really good final lyric. Exit the Warrior. Today is Tom Sawyer. He gets high on you and the energy you trade. He gets right onto the friction of the day. It's a cool final lyric, I think, because partly I really like that it begins, Exit the Warrior. It's like stage directions. This is the end of the song and they're like seeing you off. But also it ends with him saying, He gets right onto the friction of the day, which works well as the setup for the rest of the album. It's like, okay, we've begun. It's time to get onto the day. Here we go. Right. This ending vamp really brings together a lot of things I like from the song. It's got that bar of six that they sneak in there sometimes. Peart is double-timing on the drums in some cool ways. His drum fills are really good. It's kind of alternating between an E power chord and an F sharp power chord, which the song does earlier, too. I just like that sound of one going to two. The synth is back in, playing that synth lead. It's It's a really cool outro. And then it does something interesting, though not uncommon. It just fades away. I've said this before, that I like it when a song ends. I tend to prefer endings over fade-outs. But someone actually recently mentioned to me a different perspective that I really like, and that's that a fade-out implies something very different from an ending. It kind of implies that the song never ends. Maybe in our imaginations, it just goes on forever. Maybe Rush just keeps this vamp going, and Neil Peart just keeps soloing forever. With a little bit of imagination, it becomes true. An endless jam in seven, synths and guitars and drum fills colliding into eternity as one of the most shamelessly joyful rock bands in history plays on over and beyond the horizon. And that'll do it for my analysis of Rush's Tom Sawyer, a really cool song by a band that I had a great time learning about and that I've I've really been happy to rediscover and get back into. I hope you like this episode. As always, you can reach me with feedback, thoughts, music suggestions, or recommendations at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Find out more about how to support me making this show at patreon.com slash songs and keep spreading the word. Thanks so much to everyone who has told a friend about this show. I love hearing from you all, and I'm looking forward to answering a whole bunch of your questions on the upcoming q a episode your outro soloist is the very first outro soloist for strong songs mr bj chord on the trumpet so stay around for him and i'll be back in two weeks with more strong songs